What is good to be with you if you're new or visiting? My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew chapter 10. To Matthew chapter 10, we're continuing through the gospel of Matthew because as we're preparing our hearts in this season of Advent to celebrate the reality that God has come to us as one of us, we thought instead of doing a specific Christmas series that we just keep going through the Gospel of Matthew. And the main reason being is Christmas is obviously all about Jesus. And in this section of Matthew that we're actually in, Jesus is teaching us what does it mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to follow after him? And what should we expect in following him? And so our hope as a church that in the midst of celebrating Christmas and all that it means in our culture and our context, that you would truly consider I truly consider and contemplate who Jesus actually is and what does it mean to have all of your life, all of your life, orbit around him. So before uh, before we read Matthew 10 today, I want to give just a little context for what's going on in the gospel of Matthew. So chapter 10 of Matthew, it starts with Jesus naming the 12 apostles as leaders, So it's important to know that the 12 disciples weren't the only disciples Jesus had. They're the 12 Jesus chose from among his disciples to be his especially appointed leaders and those he would entrust ministry later on to. So when you read Matthew 10, what's happening is Jesus is getting these young leaders ready for life after him. He knows that his ministry is going to be carried on by these 12 men. So he's training them for the calling that's coming for them in the future. By the way, that's how God works. He's training you now for ministry in the future that you don't even know about yet. So he names the 12 in the verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. And then in verse 5, Jesus sends them out. Verse 5. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Jesus sends them out on their first missionary and a journey and leadership assignment with these, all of chapter 10 are these instructions. Now all those instructions, there's some nuance for their context. But the principles of his instructions are meant to encourage every disciple of Jesus to be faithful to the mission and the task he's given us. I don't know if you know this, but when you became a Christian, you were commissioned for his mission. I don't know if you know that, but the purpose of your life got flipped upside down when Jesus saved you. We as a people have been sent into the world so the world would know the grace of God. It's abundantly clear in the New Testament that Jesus commands, he expects, and he empowers his people for mission. That running through every area of your life and overarching every ambition that you have should be this resolve to demonstrate and declare the good news of the kingdom of God to those around you who have yet to trust and yet to obey Jesus. Now listen, this does not mean that everything you do as a Christian is telling other people about Jesus. There's more to the Christian life than just evangelism. God's word calls us to be faithful in all sorts of ways. But it does mean that one of the main threads that runs through all of your life is this desire for Jesus to get more worship through more people knowing the joy and satisfaction of being loved by God through him. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because the text we're dealing with today, what Jesus is gonna teach you and me today is he's gonna deal with the experience 
of explaining and reasoning with others about what Jesus has said. Because from the text where you're going to see that it's obvious that Jesus commands you and expects you to be on mission with him. And it's obvious from the New Testament that he's given you the Holy Spirit of God so that you would be on mission with him. But he knows you. He knows me. And even with all those commands and all that power, he knows that we're still going to be afraid to do it. He knows how our hearts work. He knows how quickly fear drowns out every godly desire, every godly ambition we have. If you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you know this experience all too well. So you you have this desire, this passion to talk to someone you love about who Jesus is. And if you're here and not a Christian, you, you know the desire when something has changed your life, you want to speak about it. And, and Christians, you especially want to tell those people you love the most about who Jesus is and what he means to you. So you're praying, you're hoping to have that one opportunity to talk about him, but you're also afraid. You're afraid, and what you're afraid of, you're not quite sure what you're afraid of, but you know fear is swirling in you. And then the moment comes, you're about to open your mouth. You're about to ask that question. You're about to share that story and something vulnerable about you, but something in you silently says, don't, don't do it. Don't say that. What will they think? And the fear causes you to shrink back and you don't say anything. And the conversation moves on. Oftentimes this feels, this idea of wanting to tell someone about Jesus, it feels like there's a wave coming at you and the wave's coming and you're standing there and you're getting ready for it to hit and you want to catch the wave as it comes and it comes and right in the moment where it's cresting and this is your opportunity, this is where you say it, this is that moment you've been praying for, you've been waiting for, it's right here and then you pull back because you're not quite sure what's in the wave. What's hidden in there, I don't know what it is and you're scared to jump in, and so you pull back, the wave crashes, the moment ends, and it goes on, and then you're filled with all that shame and all that regret of, I blew it. And you're sad because you don't see, you you know how that happens. You miss that moment, and the conversation goes, you're like, it'd be super weird to go, yeah, back to Jesus. Like, Like, you don't know how to do it? And so you're sitting there, not knowing what else to do. Now, if you're here, and you're not a Christian, and maybe a friend brought you, I'm really glad that you're here. And you're sitting there thinking, you're like, are my Christian friends always this angsty? Yes, yes, we are. Every time we're talking about Jesus, we're a nervous wreck inside. Now, but listen, the reason that is, and even, again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can relate to this. The reason we feel that way is because don't, isn't it true in life generally that the most important, most Deep conversations that you need to have with the people who mean most to you are the most difficult to have, aren't they? You're about to go home for Christmas, aren't they? Isn't it crazy that the most important conversations that you should have are the hardest to have? Because it requires vulnerability, it requires humility, it requires intimacy, and we don't know how to do that. I, I have experienced this feeling so many times where fear has overwhelmed me. I remember one time in particular that's very visceral for me, was with my grandfather. And he was in the hospital, and this is before he passed away years ago, but we didn't know if my grandfather was going to make it. And I really, really loved my grandfather. I loved our relationship, because we, 
We talk about philosophy and religion and faith and science. And depending on the moment, he was either an avid atheist or he was an immovable agnostic. And we'd spoken about Jesus before, and, but when I saw him in the hospital bed, I just had this conviction, this desire of, I have to help him see. This may be the last time that I see him. I'm praying, I want to have the boldness to talk to him in the hospital bed so he could see that he can trust Jesus over everything. And I remember I walked up to him and the moment overwhelmed me. It overwhelmed me. The nurses, the equipment, the ICU, my dad, everything going on, I just was there and I just was overwhelmed. I told him I loved him, I gave him a hug, and I remember walking out feeling so ashamed. Because Jesus is the most important person in my life. And I loved him so much, and yet my fear was too strong for me to deal with, and I shrunk back. The wave came, and I couldn't bring myself to go into the unknown with Jesus. And I want you to know, Jesus knows this will happen to every single one of us when we try to speak about him to people who don't believe. Listen, even those in our church who are so gifted in evangelism, who are so faithful in it, even they feel this. I texted someone this week and say, please tell me you still get nervous. If not, I'm going to be very discouraged. So just lie to me and tell me you do, right? But it was a great reminder. They texted me back and said, the more you do it, the less nervous you get, but it still happens. It still happens. And Jesus' point when it happens is he wants to teach you how to deal with your fear so you don't miss out on the joys of it. Listen, when you have the courage to talk to someone who you love about what's most important in your life to help them see how great Jesus is, if you're a Christian, there are a few things more joyful, more freeing, more satisfying than that. I want you to know it. You don't have to be scared of it. Jesus wants to teach you that. And Jesus is going to deal with our fears probably in ways differently than we would expect. So let's go and read the text together. You're going to see Jesus begin to deal with our fears when it comes to the mission he's given to us. Matthew 10, verse 26. Here's what the word of God says. Therefore, therefore, don't be afraid of them. Since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark Speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have, been, have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who, who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but three times Jesus says, don't be afraid to proclaim what Jesus has said. And each time he tells you, don't be afraid, and here's why. 
because he doesn't want your life to be driven by fear of others. He doesn't want you to give up speaking about the greatness of his kingdom. And notice that Jesus said, fear doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Fear doesn't mean you're excused from mission. And fear doesn't mean it disqualifies you from being used. Nor does Jesus say, just stop it. Just stop being afraid. He says, don't be afraid. And then he gives us rock solid, magnificent, anchoring truth for you to stand on in the midst of your fears. So here are the three points Jesus makes. We're gonna hit these three. He says, don't fear others. Jesus's word will be vindicated. Secondly, don't fear others. Fear God, who is more terrifying. Third, don't fear others. God uses all of his might to intimately care for you. And all of this truth is meant to embolden you in your love for the people around you who don't believe what we believe. All of this is meant to keep you faithful to God in the midst of difficulty. And in so many ways, listen, dealing with our fears of other people is the only way to keep loving God and them well. If you're scared of someone, if you're scared of what they can take from you, eventually you won't be loving to them. Fearing others, fearing others will end up making you an unloving person because you won't say what's needed or what's best because of your fear. And Jesus has commissioned us to bless the world with his love. But the only way we're gonna do it is if we deal with the fears that keep us from it. So first point, don't fear others. Jesus' word will be vindicated, verse 26 and 27. He says, therefore, don't be afraid of them. Since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Now these first two verses are a little unclear at first because Jesus is using imagery to make his point. He says, don't be afraid of them. The them for that context were people who were actively opposing Jesus at the time and were speaking evil of him and his name. And Jesus says, don't be afraid because one day, everything's gonna be made plain. One day, the truth will be undeniable. So he's saying right now, things are covered. You can only see Jesus through faith. He's saying one day, you will see him by sight and it will be undeniable. This is the hope for every Orthodox Christian for the last 2,000 years. That's the purpose of Advent. Advent is to look back that he came and to look forward to when he comes and restores all things. And when Jesus comes again, there will be no doubt. There will be no doubt. His glory, his love, his truth, his beauty will be undeniable. Undeniable on full display. So it's really important to say this. The hope of the Christian is not, is not that everything we say will be vindicated. The hope is that everything Jesus says will be vindicated. It's important to emphasize that from the text. Look back at verse 27. Notice whose word it is. Verse 27. What I, what I tell you, what you hear, we're not proclaiming our own thoughts or our own views. We're proclaiming what he has told us. Again, your views on a myriad of things will not be vindicated. My views on a myriad of things will not be seen as, look, Tyler was right. Nope. 
It's Jesus's word in every one of them that will prove true. So when you're speaking on Jesus's behalf and using his name, make sure you're speaking his truth and not your opinions. Don't, con- don't confuse your story. Don't confuse your politics. Don't confuse your perspective for his. It doesn't mean you can't have perspectives and have politics and have a story. Absolutely not. You can have those things. But make sure you don't confuse them for what Jesus says. How do you know? You go to his word. Jesus says all the time, the way you'll be my disciples is if you abide in my word. Then the truth will set you free. Then you'll truly be my disciples. We say what he has said no more and no less. The hope of the Christian is not that Jesus vindicates everything we've said. The hope of the Christian is we get included in his vindication. Hope of the Christian is we get to share in his resurrection that his story becomes our story. He says, what I tell you in the dark, what you hear whispered, speak in the light and proclaim from housetops. Again, this can be a little confusing if you're not recognizing the fact that Jesus is using imagery. He doesn't mean he was literally whispering to them in dark rooms, okay? If that's, that's a pretty weird teaching session, okay? And it's the first sign you're probably in a cult. If they're like, hey, how's your leader? Great guy, love him. He does whisper to us in dark rooms. Last day, run, that's what that means. He's not being literal in that moment about he's using imagery. Jesus is saying, I have given you, I've confided in his disciples the truth of God's word. He has taught them in private settings to proclaim it in public arenas. What you're, listen, what you're learning from God in the scriptures, what you're learning from God in sermons, what you're learning from God in, in conversations with other Christians is not solely for you. Break out of your individualism and know that you have been spoken to by God so you can speak. You've been taught by God so you can teach. You've been blessed to be a blessing. The Holy Spirit of God was given to you so you could do that. He can't wait for the next time you begin to open your mouth and talk about what Jesus has taught you. So here's an application from this point. Don't fear others when they think Your belief, our belief in Jesus and what his word says is ridiculous or stupid. Don't let fear take control and shrink back. And also, don't let fear take control and become domineering and argumentative. Our goal is not to win arguments. Our goal is not to win arguments. Our goal is to be faithful, to share and talk about what Jesus has said and done. Fear in you will cause a fight or flight response in your witness. And depending on the moment and depending on the person, depending on the power dynamics, you'll go one of two ways if you're fearful. But Jesus' love causes us to be patient with zeal, courageous with compassion, kind with resolve. But we can't force anybody to see. Please know that. Take the pressure off of you. You can't force anybody to see Jesus the way that you see him. Your job, your mission, is to merely explain, reason, tell stories, seek to persuade, but one day Jesus says, God will make it plain. 
Everything covered will be seen. So you don't have to fear, you don't have to fret. Jesus' word will be vindicated. So don't fear others. Jesus' word will be vindicated. Secondly, don't fear others. Don't fear others. Fear God who is more terrifying. I want you to look at this text with me and really sit in it with me. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I was stunned by this verse all week. I I just kept reading it and sitting in the weight of it. I, I was stunned just by the massive and terrifying realities Jesus presents, I was stunned that Jesus is so direct and blunt about it. And it stunned me that I actually couldn't remember anyone using this truth as a way to combat our fear and talking to others about Jesus. Because we typically look to the love of God to cast out our fear, and that's true. It's actually the next thing Jesus is going to teach is about how God's love casts out fear, but not before. And for a culture who hates authority, he, Jesus, Jesus says, not before, he reminds us of the staggering realities of God's holiness, his authority, his justice, and his power. In that text, Jesus assumes, he assumes, Christians will be killed for their allegiance to him. He says, those who kill the body. He recognizes that the the threats that opponents of the gospel give, they're not hollow, they're not empty. They can take away life here. And, And most of us, We don't really think about your faith being that costly because it's not our context, it's not our world. But for many of your, your, if you're Christian brothers and sisters around the world, this is a daily reality. For some of our goers whom we've sent, this is a daily reality that it can cost me everything. But Jesus doesn't only have the threat of death in mind. He's using the most extreme threat to encapsulate all other threats, both real and imagined, that produce fear in us. See, in the moment, when you're thinking about talking about Jesus and your fear causes you not to, typically in the moment, you probably have a hard time pinpointing, what is it I'm scared of? But it's when you look back, you can begin to realize, oh, I, that's what made me shy away. Or that's what made me defensive. Well, that's what made me have that posture where I didn't really speak of Jesus. Sometimes it's the threat that your reputation will be tarnished. We live in a culture obsessed with fame. And the idea of being put on the fringes is terrifying. Or it's the threat that you could lose financial or professional incentives. Or it's the threat that your comfort and your time will be taken away because you know if you talk to this person about Jesus, this is going to be a long conversation. You're like, oh, so no Netflix, no Netflix tonight. Now you want to evangelize? Not, no, probably not, right? Or others of us, you don't want to speak about Jesus because you're scared that if they know you're a Christian, they're not going to hold you to that standard. 
And you'd rather not have these people know because you kind of like being free of following Jesus in that area. It's these threats that we feel and interpret and most of the time don't even become reality. Most of the time, the fears that you have, you're like, oh, they're gonna hit me, I know it. You're like, that didn't happen, right? Wasn't even close to happening. But you think about all these wild scenarios, your fear begins to exaggerate to keep us quiet. And Jesus says, he knows all that fear is in you and it's in me, but he says, don't fear what they could take from you, whatever it is. He says, instead, fear God who could take so much more. That's what he says. Because he knows who and what you fear shapes your life. Who and what you fear drives your life. And he's saying, why don't you consider for a second who you are letting dictate your decisions, who you are letting drive your behavior? He says, think about it. Yes, those people may have some, some power over us. They can make us feel bad. They could fire you. In some, in some situations, maybe even kill you. But his point is, ultimately, they have no power over the Christian. That's his point. The people we fear are people just like us. People who will die and be forgotten and whose opinion of you will have no effect whatsoever in history. Jesus says, consider who you're letting drive your life. And he says, instead, fear God, revere God, let let his opinion drive you because he holds the keys to life and death. He judges evil and punishes sin. He's sovereign over body and soul. His point is, who is anyone compared to the living God, compared to the almighty God, creator of all things? Now, hear me. I need you to stay with me on this because all of us struggle. We struggle with the concept of hell that Jesus just introduced. If you are, and, and at some level, you should because you should recognize the fact that the judgment of God is terrifying. So I won't be able to deal with all the concepts and all the nuance to that and all the history and tradition, all that stuff. But I do want to say something really quickly so you don't just dismiss, because again, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. It's only fitting that the one who died for his people is the one who talks about judgment the most. Here's what I want you to realize about the judgment of God. In a world, in a world that is full of evil and injustice, a God who doesn't deal with evil and injustice is not good. Nor is he worth listening to. Nobody in this room. There's too many stories of horror and pain and abuse in this room. Nobody in this room wants a God who overlooks sin, who overlooks injustice, who overlooks pain and sorrow and awful and heinous acts. But the God of the Bible, the God who's here right now, he does deal with sin. He does deal with evil right now, not in the ways that we would want, but one day he ultimately will. But what is terrifying about him is that what if he points out that the evil is in us too? 
What if the sin and evil he, we want him to correct in the world, what if he looks at me and says, but it's also in you? See, we can't want God to end injustice and evil in the world, but then want him to stop when he gets to us. Want him to turn his eye when he gets to us. That's why he's terrifying. That's why he's terrifying. Because he will not let any sin or evil go unpunished. But that's hopeful and comforting if you've been a victim, though. Because if you've been a victim, that says whatever was done to you, God will not let it be treated as if you did have had no value, as if it was no big deal. He will punish all evil and sin. So when you're the victim, that is hopeful and comforting to know he sees me and I'm valuable to him and I know because he'll judge sin. But it's terrifying when you're the villain. And the thing about being a human is our lives, you depending on the story, you have been both victim and villain. And so God's judgment is comforting and terrifying. And Jesus says, don't fear them. Fear God. Because for all the worldly power someone may have, for all the popularity someone may have, for all the clout someone may have, it will melt like wax before the consuming fire of God. And Jesus is telling this to you because that should make you hopeful. And you're thinking, I feel scared. I don't feel hopeful, right? He's saying it should make you hopeful because if this God is for you, who can be against you? This is Paul's point in Romans 8.31. He says, what then are we to say about these things, the salvation of God? He has this line, if God is for us, who is against us? If the one who has all authority and all power and all judgment, if he's for us, then no threat will stand. Then no threat can take anything away from us because we serve a resurrected king. And Jesus says, fear him. Keep speaking his name. So don't fear others. Jesus' word will be vindicated. Don't fear others. Fear God who's more terrifying. And lastly, don't fear others. God uses all of his might to intimately care for you. Matthew 10, 29. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So Jesus moves from the terror of the living God to the tender care of the living God. He's both. He's both. And Jesus brings up the value randomly of two sparrows. And his point is the sparrows in their context was one of the cheapest birds you could buy. So cheap that says two were sold for a penny. Now just FYI, Jesus did not use American currency. Okay, just so you know. He wasn't like, you got any dollars? Not a thing, right? But the translators are taking the Greek word and they're translating into our American context. For the Greek word, aserion, is this small copper coin that was worth one-sixteenth of what a laborer would make in a day. He's saying they are so cheap and insignificant that you could buy two of them with one of these small copper coins. His point is, look how insignificant they are, and yet 
God is so concerned and present that not one of the two will fall to the ground without his consent. I want you to notice the scope of God's control and notice the shift in Jesus' language about God. So think about the fact, there's not one bird today that will die. Not one in any part of any of the world where one will die without God knowing intimately about that little bird's life. Some of you are sad right now, but that little bird's life and being sovereign over it without his consent. That is intensely specific. That is intensely individual care right there. And it's in this context where what Jesus calls God, his language shifts. He says in verse 29, he says, without your father's consent. When he turns to care, he goes, remember this God who judges living in the dead, that's your father. God the Almighty, the infinite and eternal one, he tends to and he cares for his creation and his people as our father. And then Jesus says, he knows every single hair on your head. His point is something as insignificant as the number of hairs on your head or whether you lose them or grow them or cut them, he's saying he's actively engaged in your life. His point is this, there's no part of your life that's small to him. You can never pray a prayer too small. There's nothing you can bring to him and he's like, I want something bigger. It means every area, every part of your story, he cares about. Not only does he care about, he knows about. He's actively, is it the idea of the text is he's actively counting. Not just he knew the number, he's actively engaged in counting the hairs on your head to know what's going on in your life. This means that nothing, nothing comes into your life without his ultimate sovereign fatherly decision to allow it to happen. Even the evils, even the hurts that come upon you, God will not allow to go wasted and his promise is somehow, and I don't know how, but somehow he'll turn them into good. The God who rules the world, he rules it with you in mind. He has you in his mind as he's ordering everything. And not just you in mind as a name, you in mind as daughter. You in mind as son. And I don't know what your earthly father was like, so that can be hard to imagine. But he takes all of that authority and all that might and he uses it and he stewards it to be tender to you. To love you and protect you and provide for you. So even when evil comes and even when fear rises up in us, we can know my father's in control. That he knows everything about you better than you do. That's one cool thing about having kids, I I get that, is I know my kids better than they do. I can tell Henry, stop, because I know he's about to fall into that wall right in front of him. I just know it. He's like, no, I'm not, Dad. Bam, right in the wall, right? I know him better than he knows himself right now. That's how God is with you. He knows you better than you do. He knows everything going on. He knows how things outside of you are affecting you, and he's promised, he's promised to be with you through all of it. Again, let's go to the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, to see the promise. This text, we could... It's unbelievable. He says, who can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? He's dealing with fear. Who can separate us? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We, because of you, are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can touch the thing most valuable to you, God's love for you. Nothing can touch it. That's why there's no better news and no better person than Jesus. That's the common confession of every Christian. Jesus is our anthem. Jesus is our joy. We are a mess, but he's the anchor. We are full of fear, but he made promises. So don't fear others. They don't care for you the way God does. They've made promises promises to you the way God does. Don't fear them. God cares for you. He's trying to say, this is why you can speak. This is why you can share. And then he closes with a promise and a warning, and we're done. Jesus closes this section with a promise and a warning. He says, therefore, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Another really light verse from Jesus. When you, he said, here's his promise. When you speak up about Jesus, when you don't hide your affiliation with him, he says, he'll speak up about you. He won't hide his affiliation with you. And I want you to notice from this text, keep that text up. I want you to notice, he says, who will acknowledge me? He doesn't say who's effective in evangelism. He doesn't say who's powerful in the world. He doesn't say who does it eloquently. Sometimes you're gonna acknowledge Jesus and you're gonna be sloppy. Sometimes you're gonna acknowledge Jesus and you're gonna be quiet when you should have spoken or you're gonna speak when you should have been quiet or you're gonna try to do it and have to apologize for some things later. He just says really simply, if you will just acknowledge me before other people, he says anyone, no matter your ranking in society, no matter your degrees, no matter what you make, Anyone who is not ashamed of him, not ashamed to be associated with him in any context, on any issue, in front of any person, he says, that's the one I honor before God. And he makes the warning. But the one who withdraws from Jesus in front of other people, Jesus says, then I'll withdraw from you. Again, not that you weren't effective, not that you even sinned or failed. He says, when you hid your association with me, The idea here is to ongoingly deny Jesus in front of others for the rest of your life. The warning is this. Then Jesus says, then you will be rejected before God because you did not honor the son. Now listen, all of us, me included, all of us are tempted to hide our faith in Jesus. All of us are. You know how often I, I want to tell people I'm not a pastor? All the time. What do you do? Anything but a pastor. Name it. I don't care. Because <laughs> I, I can feel the temptation. I, I, don't, I don't know what they're going to think when I say that. All of us are tempted to be embarrassed about some aspect of Jesus. Listen, 
please hear me, and I've seen this this last year, please hear me, before you deny Jesus completely, you deny him partly. Before you reject him completely, you deny something specific about him. It doesn't begin with outright denial. It begins with specific areas of distrust. It starts with the topic where his teaching makes you uncomfortable. It starts with the topic where it begins to pit you against other people that you love or who you want to like you. It starts when it begins to cost you. We're happy to associate with Jesus until his word puts us on the fringes of power or the fringes of culture or the fringes of family acceptance until his word means that we have to change, not just they have to change, but we have to change or we have to own up to wrong or we have to be made to look weak. Here's the question I need you to really ask yourself, if you care at all about being faithful to who Jesus is. Where are the places in his word where you deep down wish it was not what he said? I've said this before and I, and I have shame over it where I've said things to people, I really wish God's word didn't say this, but it does. That's not noble. That's pride. Because it's me saying I know better. What are the areas of God's word where you find yourself wanting to distance yourself? Now, sometimes maybe it's because you don't understand the text. And hear me really clearly, please hear this. Doubt and struggle are part of the journey of faith. Don't hear what I just said, it means, so I can't question anything? Absolutely not, the reason the Bible's amazing, you can question it all day. Don't, Don't hide your doubts from God, he can handle it. Don't hide your doubts from this church, we can handle it. Because we're just like you. Everybody here is struggling and doubting. But here's the difference. We don't revel in our doubt. We don't glory in our doubt. This is all over the place to glory in our confusion. No, we're honest about our doubt, but we're humble about it. We pray. We learn, we read, we listen, we exercise patience and restraint, and we wait for God to grant us faith. Before you deny Jesus completely, you deny him specifically and in part. Now, before you're too discouraged thinking, well, if that's the case, we're all going to hell. Like, like if right now, we're like, if that's the case, if, if denying him means he denies me, then I have no hope. In the text, he says, the one who denies that verb, denies the idea of that verb in the Greek is this ongoing nature of denial. It doesn't mean one time or two times. It means an ongoing nature of denial. So for the Christian, when you fail him and you will, when you shrink back and you will, when you deny him in ways and you will, for the Christian, that becomes the grounds for repentance, not rejection. It becomes the ground for repentance, not rejection. And we know this because the apostle Peter, the chief apostle Peter put this to the test for all of us. He denied Jesus three times, like three in a row. And it wasn't before some powerful government official. It wasn't before some powerful business person. It was before a slave girl in a courtyard. His fears overwhelmed him and he denied Jesus. Fear blinded his faith. But what happens to Peter? The resurrected Jesus, once he's resurrected, one of the things Jesus wants to do is to make sure he seeks out Peter. The resurrected Jesus, of all the things, he he just was risen from the dead, and of all the things he wants to do, he wants to go find Peter and restore him. 
He wants to seek him out and grant him the gift of confession and repentance. And Jesus has this way of interacting with people and changing people where he makes Peter so different. His love, his forgiveness, his mercy makes Peter so different where Peter eventually dies as a martyr. The one who denied Jesus three times in a courtyard becomes the one who dies for Jesus because he'd rather die than forsake him. That's the kind of power Jesus' words have. When they get down into your heart, they change things. So I want you to know this. No matter how many times you've denied him, no matter how many times you've denied him or shrunk back or haven't associated with him, the fact that you're alive means there's still time and grace and opportunity for you to come to him. This is why, just so you know, the motto of the Christian life is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Because we fail far too often. We're far too weak, and it's repentance and faith that testifies to the strength of Jesus. No, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. That's why Jesus is so spectacular. Because he goes and seeks those out who deny him, and he restores them. He's so valuable, he's so singular, that your association with him decides everything else about our lives. That's why we can't be quiet. Because when you found a treasure that, that, that's that satisfying, you can't be quiet. His grace is too good. His love is too strong. His kindness too immense. His patient too long-suffering. He's too life-changing to keep to ourselves, and the stakes are far too high. Don't fear. Don't grow weary Don't shrink back from fulfilling the greatest purpose of your life. To use your story, to use your words to describe the incomparable love and power and wisdom of the kingdom of God given to you in the person of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, the amount of fear that resides in the hearts in this room, God, I don't think any of us really understand how often fear grips us, fear of other people, fear of their opinions, fear of what they'll do, fear of how we be perceived, fear of what will be taken. God, we just admit to you that we fear others more than we fear you, that we fear loss more than we fear losing you. And God, instead of blame shifting, instead of acting like it's not that big of a deal, instead of just pushing it off to the side, God, I just want to say I'm sorry for the ways that I shrink back from associating with you. Jesus, I'm sorry for the ways that I have acted like your word should be different. God, would you make us a people who are so sure of your love and so sure of your promises and so sure, Jesus, of your resurrection that we don't let fear get in the way of telling the best news we could ever tell. That the author of life and beauty and joy 
and laughter has come close to us in a broken, hurting, dying, evil, selfish world. And Jesus, you came as a child to be vulnerable with us, to hurt with us, to suffer with us so that we could have your indestructible life. God, now begin to change the way we view our work, our profession, our families, our neighborhoods, our money, our gifts. God, help us dream new dreams of how to help other people see what we see. Jesus, thank you that you never let go of us, even when we try to let go of you. Help us sing as people and live as people who believe that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Sing together.